Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series through the penitential psalms. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Well, today, looking at the first 21 verses of Psalm 22, hear now the reading of God's holy word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. For the Christian, it's impossible to read this first verse and not hear the words of our Lord Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words of Jesus is, He atoned for our sin upon the cross. 
is at the pinnacle of his substitutionary suffering. Out of all of the words in Scripture, he chose this verse. And it's not without significance. For he who is the living word was not flippant with his words. Rightly also is this psalm of David understood as prophetic, as David was, according to the apostle Peter, a prophet. Peter said that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, and certainly the crucifixion as well. And as Peter explained to the church, David and the other Old Testament prophets were serving not themselves, but us. In the things that have now been announced to us through those who have preached the good news to us by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. As we read with eyes to see the veiled references of Christ. Well, they, well, they, they leap off the page. I'm sure you saw them as I read today. But this psalm is not only prophetic. It's also the poetry of of David's anguish. You may say then. How then do we reconcile. A psalm of David's suffering. With a psalm prophetically. Of our Lord's suffering. Shall we, shall we pit. Secular suffering. And supernatural sacrifice. Against one another. Well if we do. We'll miss out on this beautiful truth. That the writer of Hebrews said. Listen closely. Christ had to be made like His brothers and sisters in every respect. So that He could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God. To make atonement for the sins of the people. For since He Himself suffered when He was tempted, He is able to help those who are tempted. And so it's in this psalm, Psalm 22, that we see both ourselves and our Savior, who suffered for us. And just as Jesus quoted from this psalm, in His anguish, you and I also are given fitting language. Language of lament. Not to wallow in our self-pity, but to look to our Savior, who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, we in Christ persevere in Christ's provision. Christians persevere in Christ's provision. Now, similar to other Davidic Psalms, we do not know the what, we don't know the why of David's suffering. But we do know how he feels. We know that he feels forsaken by God. The Hebrew word translated forsaken here can mean abandonment. It can mean alienation. But in general, that's the concept. And not only does David feel alone, he feels left alone. He feels left alone by the one who promised to help and deliver his people. And in the moment, and we have been there, maybe not to this agony of course, but we have all suffered at some point. 
And there is a temptation in all of us, and the temptation is in David as well, to interpret, to interpret these feelings as if they are God's displeasure. As if it is to say, well, there it is. I've finally done it. I've sinned the sin that wreaks havoc upon my soul. And it's in that moment that your flesh and my flesh will tempt us to not to turn to God. Here's our temptation, right? To turn to the world. As if the world is listening. Oh, you're going through tough times. Oh, you're suffering. You're in anguish. Oh, I have an open ear for you, says the world. Just come to me. When in reality... God leads us to trust in Him, even in our suffering. God teaches us of His steadfast love in the midst of anguish. And it is times like these that the pleas of our prayers develop in us perseverance. Here's the way that John Calvin puts it. I love this. Listen closely. Calvin says, So the true role of praying is that he who seems to have beaten the air to no purpose or to have lost his labor in praying for a long time should not, on that account, leave off or desist from that duty. And there is this advantage which God in His fatherly kindness grants to His people, that if they have disappointed, been disappointed at any time of their desires and expectations, they may make known to God their perplexities, their distresses, and then burden them, as it were, into His bosom. In other words, what Calvin is getting at is that part of the blessing of persevering in prayer is in fact casting our cares upon the Lord. Which means that when we feel forsaken, it is as important that that we pray as what we pray. But, but that's not our tendency, is it? Our tendency is, like in this case, to hear David's cries to the Lord and wonder, does the Lord ever answer? Does the Lord ever answer these cries that I make to the Lord? Now let me just pause here to say this. If you're a student of your Bible and you're a student of biblical history, you know that God does answer David's prayers. You know the rest of the story. You know that the Lord provided for David and provided for David abundantly. But in the moment, he, like you, like me, well, it's easy to lose this perspective. But what we need not miss in this psalm, and this is sort of the the underlying point of the first part of this psalm, and that is this. David turns to the Lord. Not to somebody else. He turns to the Lord. He prays to the Lord. And yet how often, as I ask myself and examine myself, how often do I do otherwise? Do we grumble, complain, rather than carrying our cares to the one who cares for us most? Or do we amuse our anguish away rather than petitioning our provider? Do we wallow in self-pity rather than lamenting? To the Lord? 
David teaches us, well, he teaches us as much in his actions as in his words, making his prayers and supplications known to God continually. In fact, in this psalm, David says, and I'm doing it day and I'm doing it night. He is consistently pouring out his heart to God. And while God seems silent, David's not, right? He's actually quite vocal. He's pouring out his petitions to the Holy One. And then he inserts this. It's the Holy One who is enthroned on the praises of his people. Isn't that a curious insertion in the psalm of a plea for mercy? A plea for God's provision? You see, what we see in the very first part of this psalm is that in David's feeling forsaken, he does not abandon a right view of God's holy sovereignty. Just as God's seeming silence does not negate the praises of His people. It is in times of difficulty that the world Our flesh and the devil will try to lead us away from the Lord. And it is in those times that we go to the Lord. And it is in those times in which we persevere. Because how we feel must always be gauged against the rock foundation of God's truth. How I feel in any given moment has to be gauged against the foundation of God's truth. In God's Word, for example, David knows that his fathers put their trust in the Lord. He's gone to God's Word and he says, here's the testimony that I read. I read God's Word and I find that my fathers trusted the Lord and the Lord delivered them. I go to God's Word and I read that my fathers cried out to the Lord and He rescued them. Why should I not cry out to the Lord? Have you ever noticed though? Maybe, maybe you don't have this tendency. I, I do. I, I find that oftentimes that when I read history in the scriptures, I want to put them on my timeline, not God's. And then, as David directs us, I forget the patience, for example, of the patriarchs in scripture. About how long did Abraham and Sarah wait for a son? I mean, wow! Years and years and years. And Abraham consistently, because Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 4, Abraham consistently says, the Lord promised, the Lord is faithful. The Lord promised, the Lord is faithful. Over and over and over again. And God did fulfill His promise. Or I think about Joseph, who in prison did everything right. He was the upstanding citizen of the dungeon, right? And yet, year after year, he was there until God released him. Or I think about Jacob's children, also known as Israel, who were in Egyptian slavery. Remember, do you remember how long they were in Egyptian slavery? We'll just take a quick vote. How many vote 100 years? Okay, good job. How many vote 200 years? Good. 300 years? Okay, you're going to want to raise your hand on this one. How many of you vote more than 400 years? 
I mean, like the United States of America, we're but a pop compared to the amount of time that the children of Israel were in captivity in Egypt. God's silence in our situation does not mean that He is not at work. Jesus said, I'm at work. My Father's at work. We're always at work. But what when it feels like forever? When it feels like a prison? When it feels like enslavement? We can begin to feel worn down. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's just the stuff of life just wears you down. There are times when I just, I get home at the end of the week and I, I throw the deadbolt on the door and I, I, just, I just want to go to bed. I'm worn down. David felt like a worm. He says it here. That's how worn down he is. I am a worm, he confesses. I mean, think about what he's saying there. That in his suffering, he thinks not as himself, as one made in the image of the holy God enthroned on the praises of his people. David says, I feel like a dirt eater. He feels less than human. Subhuman. He's scorned. He's despised. He's mocked by his enemies. And the reason he's mocked, wait for it, he's mocked because he trusts his Lord. That's why he's despised. That's why he's mocked. He trusts in the Lord. Such has been and is the hostility of a world in rebellion to its creator. This is nothing new, is it? And like David, we know and love our Heavenly Father. And by virtue of that, in the world's eyes, we are guilty by association. Right? If you love the Lord, if you seek to follow Him, if you seek to trust in Him, then you're associated with God. Which is our life. And the world hates. Here's the way that Jesus put it. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? Crystal clear words from Jesus. The Apostle Peter helps put this in perspective. In writing to the church, knowing the truth of what Jesus has said, Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Did you catch the key phrase in that verse? You and I share in Christ's sufferings. In this we rejoice. And to rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings, that is a clarion call to consider our suffering in light of Christ. All of the suffering that you and I and our brothers and sisters across the world, all of the suffering that we encounter, we are to consider it through the lens of Christ's suffering. That's what Peter's saying. He was 
our Lord was, as Isaiah described him, as it was read earlier, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You may recall in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records, and I might add, this is an echo from Psalm 22, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they mocked him, saying these words, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And so when Jesus cried upon the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Unlike David, his father, Jesus upon the cross, Paul says, became a curse. And do you know who he became a curse for? Us. Paul says, Christ became a curse for us. For our sake, he made him to be he. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In our suffering, then we do not cry out to an unknown God, but our heavenly Father, to whom we have been eternally reconciled for Christ's sake. When we feel forsaken, we know truly neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when the fiery trials come, we look beyond our circumstances to Christ. And while it sounds, well, it sounds impossible, but for the help of the Holy Spirit, we rejoice in sharing Christ's sufferings. Because we trust in His provision. We trust in Christ's provision, right? That's the only way that we can say that we rejoice in sharing in Christ's sufferings. Now how easy it is for you and me to obsess on our circumstances. Especially when they include, and I'm just giving you a couple examples, especially when they include feelings of abandonment, or physical pain, or attacks from our enemies that maybe once upon a time we thought were our friends. But friends, self-obsession helps no one, right? Including you. Stop obsessing over yourself. As a friend of mine reminds me, you're just not that important. That's what he says to me, right? <laughs> Thanks. Who needs enemies when I've got friends like you, right? But instead, we don't look to ourselves, but we look to the testimony of God's faithfulness. As a covenant child... That's what David does here. 
And he's teaching us something very important about it being a covenant child. David says, I look backwards and I see God's providential care. God cared for me from my mother's womb. God cared for me in my birth. God has cared for me all of my life. And in David's looking back, he sees evidence of God's covenant faithfulness to him. Commentator Willem van Gemeren observes this, quote, God has a purpose for the life of the psalmist because he has shown him his love from birth. The covenantal relationship too has been from birth because God had promised to be the God of Abraham and of his children. God was his father by covenant and had taken it on himself to be his guardian and protector. And so in essence, what Van Gemeren's getting at is he's saying David is doing what every covenant child of God should do. Pointing back, looking back. This is how I feel. And right now I feel forsaken, David says. But, but, but I'm going to look back. I'm going to look back to what God has said. And as David was a child of God's old covenant church, Israel, he could be sure of God's steadfast love and favor just as the covenant child of the New Testament, the church is assured we receive the sign, the seal of baptism. And that's one of the reasons why our larger catechism puts such an emphasis on this. In fact, our larger catechism says that the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is what we are all to do. Amidst trials, amidst tribulation, like David, we need to look back to something of gospel substance. There is so much in life that is anti-gospel that you and I need to be able to look back and to look back in our past and say, that is of gospel substance. And our larger catechism says, and one of those key areas is your baptism as a Christian. Our baptism as a Christian is of substance, not only our birth, not only our upbringing, but in baptism we draw strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we were baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace, among other things. And so while baptism does not save us, in looking back to it, we are reminded of this truth, that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That our salvation is God's doing, not our own, and it's a gift. Or to put it another way, baptism is not a testimony of what you did. It's a testimony of what God and Christ did. Big distinction. And so when we look back to to our baptism, we don't look back at saying, I'm so glad that I was so smart, that I was such a good boy, that I did so many good things, that, that God would just choose me, that I was so wise in making a profession of faith and, and choosing Jesus as my Savior. Yeah, I'll take that water. Woo! No. We look back to our baptism when we said, but for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. I'm destined for hell. 
But God has put his sign and his seal upon me. A testimony of what God has done. And God alone, monergistically, in Christ, to his glory. And when we look back, when you look back, when I look back, we look back over what we might call life's story. Here's what we're going to find. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, when we look back on our life, we're going to see that we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, what I'm getting at is is that the entirety of the Christian life is based and rooted in Christ's provision. That's it. In Christ's provision. And so we're living in that. That's what the Christian life is, right? We're living our lives day to day in Christ's provision. Never a moment of my existence is outside of Christ's provision as a Christian. And as we witnessed in Nashville this last week, a person motivated by evil can steal and kill and destroy precious lives of those we love. And while the child of God cannot be snatched out of her father's hand, our adversary, well, our adversary sure can wreak havoc. Like, like wild animals, like a pack of wild dogs. Which is exactly what David says. He chooses three metaphors. He says, well, my enemies are like strong bulls of Bashan. My enemies are like ravening and roaring lion. My enemies are like, well, dogs. And just to be clear, in case you didn't catch this, like none of those are terms of endearment. He does not mean any of those affectionately, right? But he is describing what it feels like to be surrounded by a pack of wild animals who want your death. The land of Bashan was known for its fertility. It's where you'd graze your herd for fat cows and strong bulls. But in Isaiah's day, and I find this really interesting, in Isaiah's day, Bashan was symbolic of prideful arrogance. I mean, who needs God in the land of plenty? And so the bulls of Bashans, they're 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 well, they're not they're not the strong silent type. They're actually quite quite vocal. They they roar like hungry lion. They chase like a pack of wild dogs, but they're confident in their strength and they're arrogant. In their words against God. And this seems to be the sentiment of the dogs who, figuratively speaking, are encircling David within this psalm. They have no regard for the Lord's anointed, or perhaps because he is the Lord's anointed, they want him dead. And so they roar like a lion, which is reminiscent of what? It's reminiscent of Peter describing our adversary, the devil, who roars like a lion, right? And he's the one that's behind all evil. He is the one who is behind every evil we know in this world. Satan's minions are sure to surround and strike the child of God. And they will strike with all of the intended fervor of a defeated foe. Because that's what they are. Defeated. And they lash out like angry dogs, undoubtedly. 
but they are defeated by the cross of Christ. And brothers and sisters in Christ, hear me clearly. This is why we must never focus on fear, but on faith in the one who has won the battle. And we need to share that with our neighbor as we share the gospel with our neighbor. We need to share that with our other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why we do not focus on fear, but faith. Because Christ has won the battle. After Christ's resurrection, Thomas, you may recall, said to his fellow disciples, So unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You remember when he said that? And, well, he did see, and he did believe, right? But the significance of the wounds was far greater than convincing Thomas with physical evidence. Isaiah says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. You see, upon the cross, Jesus was indeed physically pierced in the hands, in the feet, and with a spear. But the significance of the piercing was a display of God's redeeming love for His people. His suffering may have been at the hands of men behaving like animals, but ultimately He was smitten by God and afflicted for our sake. In his song, Why, Michael Card says these beautiful words. And why did it have to be a heavy cross he was made to bear? And why did they nail his feet and hands? His love would have held him there. And so it did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The gospel does not promise us a life free from snorting bulls, roaring lions, and chasing dogs. But it tells us the good news of our greatest need. That a worm, a worm such as I, has been reconciled to God by the death of His Son and saved by His life. That I might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank you that our Lord was pierced for our transgressions. We do thank you that in your sovereign purpose and plan, that he died a sacrificial death and arose from the dead victoriously, conquering both sin and death that we might have life. And so we look to our Lord in faith. We look to our Lord to live out our lives day by day, trusting in your supernatural provision. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. 
Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org. Thank you.